This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Well, there was conversation recently that the White House may look into a nationalized 5G network that would be overseen by the federal government. It could be a network that uh, build out themselves and then lease to other wireless providers, or they may look to work with wireless providers who are already in the process of developing 5G. Joining us to discuss this story... Here in studio, our friend Kevin Warbach, Associate Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics right here at the Wharton School. And joining us on the phone, Andrea Matwishan, who's a professor of law and professor of computer science at Northeastern University in Boston. She's also an affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet and Society at uh, Stanford University's Law School. Kevin, great seeing you again, as always. Thanks for coming in. You too, Dan. Thank you. Andrea, as always, great to have you with us today. Hi, how are you? Thank you. Um, what's your reaction, Kevin, to the to this story and the potential of a quote-unquote nationalized 5G network? Well, on uh, the potential, that's easy. It's not going to happen. Okay. Th- this was a trial balloon floated by one staffer in the National Security Council. At some point in the last few months, uh, the PowerPoint was leaked out, uh, which is an interesting story in and of itself that someone wanted to leak that. But it was quickly denied any interest in doing this by the White House and the FCC. So it's not going to happen. Uh, The fact that it was floated is incredibly striking. Um, And in particular, the motivation for it, which was the idea was we need to build a national network that the government builds for the next generation of wireless to compete against China. Because China has this government-dominated system, so the idea was, well, we've got to do the same thing. And that's, to me, fairly scary, especially from an administration that a lot of people thought was going to promote uh, American business and the private sector. Andrew, what was your reaction to it? I I think it's also a very interesting development. Uh, My reaction on reading the text of the memo is that this was an attempt to address multiple perceived problems with a silver bullet type of solution, except the bullet is neither silver nor a solution. So (laughs) there are multiple different legitimate concerns that I think were blobbed together into this memo. The first is the question of security and the supply chain problems that we see not only in telecom, but also in industry generally with all of the attacks that we're seeing permeating our computing. So that's a legitimate concern. The solution is supply chain integrity, but that is a complicated, separate conversation. The second concern is the comparatively diminishing quality of U.S. Internet access. If you look at the quality of Internet access and the speeds, we're falling behind the world. And that's another conversation that's probably resolved through facilitating more robust competition and there are national national options such as stimulating municipal wi-fi networks or most importantly there are whole methods of internet access provision that we haven't really tried for example there's a white space initiative that we should look into more robustly and so the last bucket is the issue of of competition with other countries in this business space, and that is another set of complicated issues. So I think it was someone who had read a little bit about each of these issues and was trying to aggregate them in a way that resulted in a suboptimal policy proposal. 
Well, I mean, how close are we, Kevin, at this point to really seeing 5G being a part of our of our day-to-day basis, of our day-to-day, you know, lifestyle? It's not entirely clear to anyone what 5G means. It's yeah. a it's a marketing name for the next generation of wireless technology. Yeah. There, there's standardization work going on, uh, but uh, carriers can deploy higher speed wireless technology yeah. and say this is 5G. So we're going to see yeah. things called 5G rolling out within the next 18 months. But whether it's really a, a significant leap forward from the existing 4G networks yeah. is is open to question. But th- this is over the next five years, really, this technology, is, kind of technology, is going to get deployed uh, pretty robustly throughout the world. The, the demand for wireless is going up, uses are going up, there's a need for more capacity, and so the technology is evolving. Well, and playing off of what Andrew said, and you kind of alluded to there at the end, is the issue of us falling behind. How significant of an issue is that right now? It's a big issue. I think Andrea is absolutely right in her analysis of the situation. And uh, the, the question is... How do you get uh, robust, high-speed internet connectivity? And in the U.S., the idea is we've got private firms, and we'll let them compete, but we really have a a very small oligopoly of a handful of firms, the major firms that own the wired infrastructure, companies like Comcast and AT&T and Verizon, also control much of the wireless infrastructure. Uh, And uh, there's only a handful of them in major cities. So I I think Andrea is right that uh, we need to look at other measures to open up more robust competition. Uh, And, uh, you know, there are countries that are that are more focused on this in different ways, ensuring that they can really leapfrog the U.S. in connectivity. Why is is just the nature of the industry right now, Andrew, the reason why we don't have more of this uh, this competition and seeing more of an opportunity for other entities than just the Comcast and the Verizons and the AT&Ts of the world to, to really be able to get into this game? There are warning signs that the competition dynamics are not as healthy as they need to be. For example, if you look at customer satisfaction surveys with their internet service providers, you see that internet service providers are not universally beloved. In fact, they often rank <laughs> below things like members of Congress, them used car salespeople in the satisfaction <laughs> level. That's a warning sign that there's something not customer-oriented going on. There have also been numerous attempts at municipal Wi-Fi setup that has met with targeted resistance from industry trying to discourage and sometimes litigate out of existence the local attempts by interested parties in setting up ways for their (laughs) citizens to connect to the Internet, and particularly in rural areas where we definitely don't have perfect Internet penetration, it's important to experiment and make sure that we give those people access to the Internet, not only for recreational purposes, but this is their next generation of employment prospects that we're talking about here. And the the final point is there's really a national security concern. When you have only a single network deployed in whatever structure you want to do it, if you want to do it as a, as a uh, privately owned single co- company-controlled network or you do it as a government-controlled network, neither one of those makes sense from a national security standpoint because the key to security is redundancy. You always want to have multiple ways for citizens to get access with multiple different technologies so that if your adversaries attack one and take down one, there is a backup system 
that citizens can turn to to make sure that they're getting the best information about how to protect themselves and their family. Right. So it's, it's really not just about or, or really not so much about us falling behind in the top speed on what you can get on uh, a wired or wireless connection. I mean, Comcast will sell me a very high speed pipe uh, and Verizon or AT&T will sell me a very high speed wireless pipe, Comcast now as well. Um, but by global standards, it's much more expensive here. And it's not as ubiquitous. So, you know, as Andrew talked about, there's problems in rural areas, but there's problems also in, in lots of cities um, that don't have a lot of competition, um, which, which means these things are more limited and they're more expensive. And what's happening is we're moving beyond uh, the, the kind of baseline of Internet access to more of a world of the Internet of Things, where the, the need is not just for something that's 200 megabytes, 500 megabytes, a gigabyte per second. It's different kinds of networks, things that are lower latency, things that, as Andrew talked about, have security requirements that are different. And for that kind of evolution, yeah, we really do need a more competitive market. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. We are joined in studio by Kevin Warbach of the Wharton School and on the phone, Andrew Matuishan of Northeastern University. Again, the way for you to join in, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. You know, Andrew, when you mentioned the, the municipal aspect of this, I, I remember reading back, you know, probably about a year or so ago, maybe a little bit less than that, about the move by New York City to, you know, to start to put their own Wi-Fi network together. And obviously, New York City has a variety of, of resources that it probably can count on. But as you alluded to, when you're talking about cities that are, you know, in remote Arizona or Montana or, you know, the Dakotas, you're talking about a much, a much tougher challenge to be able to try and build a lot of this stuff out. It is a tougher challenge, and those are the areas where we may want government's help in terms of providing incentives for build-out or for the local government of the municipality to step in and provide a baseline of access for their citizens as a public service until or unless uh, a private partner shows up and is willing to collaborate on building uh, a network. But in general, it's it's a good idea to have a baseline of connectivity in every city or uh, locality. Um, and that free Internet access, it's never going to be of the same caliber as a dedicated pipe of a high-speed provider. So it's a, almost a different market. But getting people on the internet and making sure that they have that baseline of access is important not only to the individual citizens but also to local businesses. So Vienna, Austria is a great case study of how municipal Wi-Fi invigorates a local economy. Their cafes were on the verge of dying and of course the cafes are an iconic part of Vienna and what the city decided to do was to build out a Wi-Fi network partially to encourage people to go drink coffee and to work in the cafes. And indeed, that plan succeeded. And if you are a traveler in Vienna, Austria today, you know that getting access to the Internet is not a problem because the downtown area is basically blanketed with a functional network. 
And so it was a win-win scenario that Vienna engaged with, and we can do that here, too. There are lots of international examples that we can learn from. Yeah, and there's another elephant in the room here, which is network neutrality. So uh, at the same time as uh, this uh, Trump White House is floating things like this nationalizing the 5G network, the administration and the FCC have rolled back the open Internet protections that were put into place in the Obama era. And basically, they've allowed the companies that are providing Internet access total freedom to block and discriminate and manipulate traffic on the network. Now, those companies most of the time are going to be responsible. They, they're not trying to go and, and censor things. Uh, but uh, if there's not some basic foundation that says this needs to be an open network that mm -hmm. allows for new applications, that allows for innovation, and creates that opportunity for, for you know, companies to come in and build on top of it, then it really limits the potential of the network. And I think you know, part of the challenge in the U.S. is what we've talked about, the price and the, and the coverage issues and so forth. But part of it is I think we're falling behind the world because now we're yeah. actually an outlier in terms of not having an idea that the Internet has to be an open platform. What about the, the issue of security, about the use of the Internet? And obviously that's something that we've talked about a lot, Andrea, you as well. Uh, when you're, you know, We want to have, a, a I guess, a certain level of expectation of security. And I would think for whatever that percentage is, People probably do feel that the Internet is safe, but obviously it is still an issue that, that has to be addressed right now, especially with a lot of these networks and the technology coming forward. Oh, yeah. It's a huge multifaceted issue, though. So security is not one thing. And, and that's yeah. against part of what's uh, frightening about this proposal that, that came out of the White House. As Andrea said, it seemed to be a kind of simplistic response to say, oh, there's a security problem and there's a national security problem uh, competing against China, so the government should control it and centralize it. And that's actually exactly the wrong thing to do for security for, again, exactly the reason she described, that then you've got a single point of failure. S security is always going to be a challenge because it's a challenge at the endpoints, it's a challenge in the networks, it's a challenge now with state-sponsored actors and so forth. Um, and so it, it needs to be built into the processes at every stage in building these networks and building applications and using them. Uh, and uh, you know, the way to do that, though, is, is not to say, well, the government will take it over because they'll keep it secure. Andrea? Uh, I agree. So as I mentioned previously, the question of supply chain security is one that every industry in both what the public and private sector struggles with. And the idea is that if you have any component in a system that was built by a potential adversary, that adversary may have introduced a vulnerability that will allow them to attack the system. So if it's our telecommunication structure, having components built in other countries without uh, high degrees of quality control, and verification, as we currently have a situation reflecting uh, that problem now, that means that it's possible that at some point in the future we will see a hidden vulnerability leveraged to do damage to that particular system. Uh, so having a baseline of building these components domestically is not a bad idea because it is a win from a security standpoint. It's also an employment program for U.S. citizens. So that idea of improving supply chain integrity is is a good one. And it's correct in every industry, not just in, in telecommunications. Um, but as Kevin pointed out, the nuance matters. And so uh, having 
that idea of security improvement uh, in play, that's a disconnected concept from the idea of limiting competition. Uh, and in fact, security would advocate greater competition and redundancy as I said previously. But I, I think there's a, there's an element of it, you know, the, this original story that obviously we've talked about and, and kind of put to rest to a degree. Um, the, the fact that, that we're having a conversation of, of any kind on what 5G or whatever this network will be and the security elements around it and the usage of it and the availability of it, these are conversations which I know you have had with a lot of people but bringing it to the mainstream and and doing this and impacting as many people as possible, is that conversation, has that conversation been had on a variety of fronts? And where do we take it from here? Well, as Andrea said, uh, most people in America have a sense that we have a problem. Yeah. Um, that, that there's been basically, uh, for it's been a thread in this net neutrality debate for more than a decade, yeah. where the industry says, everything is great, look, and they, and they trot out these numbers about the top speeds in the U.S. and so forth. Yeah. And, and most just ordinary people say, well, yes, it's, it's true. I can, I, you know, I can get a lot more now than I could 10 years ago for sure. my internet access. Now, part of that is the devices have gotten so sure. much smarter yeah. as well. But 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 some, I just don't feel like I'm getting a great deal here, and I don't feel like I have good options here. And people yeah. have that sense, and it's based on something real, uh, and it's it's based on the fact that that we have chosen this path uh, that has limited the degree of competition, and uh, you know behind the scenes, I don't think most people appreciate just how scary and how complex the security issue is. But yeah. people certainly see identity theft, and they see these breaches that are going on, and they see these stories, so they understand that there's a, a problem. Uh, it's just, you know, fundamentally, these are highly technical systems. They are yeah. highly expensive systems that companies are spending billions of dollars building. Uh, and so there, there's not there's not a simple answer. And and again, part of the problem comes back to where we started, thinking that there's a simple answer to this. Yeah, it, it is itself uh, an indication that someone who's who's in a position where their job is to be smart about this and to yeah. understand it deeply just doesn't get it. And that that to me. Uh, is the scariest thing at all of all of the, the story, Andrew? So for me, the concern is not just about the mechanics of internet access; it's about the next generation of innovation. If we don't fix this problem of internet access and the universal nature of it, we're not going to be able to build out the automated infrastructure that. Silicon Valley is already 50% of the way there to, to building. So yeah. one of the things that I think about is connected body devices. So the FDA is approving things like internet-connected pancreases and internet-connected yeah. digital pills. In order for, for that kind of innovation to be supported and functional, you have to have a robust internet infrastructure where critical security updates can be pushed to your pancreas when you need them, where your car can get critical security updates quickly, where the navigation maps are updated on an expedited basis. If you don't have a robust set of Internet access points throughout the country, the trust that's required to maintain this next generation of always-on, always-connected innovation is simply not going to be there and we're going to fall behind as a country 
in the very industries that we led the internet revolution on. Yeah, and, and another part of it is, is this is that there is a global competition going on here, and China has been very explicit. They have a different vision of development, which is heavily state-sponsored. The government is very, it's a, it's a you know, in some ways, capitalist system. They're private companies, but with, with tremendous amount of uh, interaction and support and integration with the state. They've got a lot yeah. of state-owned infrastructure, but the state also you know, very actively pushes the private companies. They censor very robustly. Their argument is that's a better system. Their argument yeah. is that the U.S. historical model of unleashing the private sector with, with robust public interest protections is the wrong model, and their model is better. Yeah. And something coming out of our White House basically saying, we think China basically has this right and we should copy them. Yeah. In terms of PR, in terms of other companies and other countries around the world looking at this, I think it looks like a capitulation. It looks like saying China's got it right. And I actually think China, there's a lot of tremendous things they're doing, right. but I don't think that's the right model. I think the idea of having freedom and having the, the private sector lead is the right approach for innovation. Right. But but we've got to do all the things that Andrew was talking about and, and we've been talking about on this call, on this conversation to actually allow that innovation to happen. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Kevin Warbach of the Wharton School joining us along with Andrea Matuishan of Northeast University. So, Andrea, how do you see a, a lot of these issues playing out? Because as, as Kevin laid out, I mean, the, the the private sector part of it is obviously very important. Uh, the the security part of it is is a very important piece to it, and the consumer part. I, I mean, these are three that that seemingly not always we you know have the same end goal in in a lot of cases. There certainly will be points of tension, and that is why the age-old D.C. axiom of personnel is policy. It continues to be true and is the central piece here. You really need a group of experts with deep knowledge on each of these different prongs that have been mushed together in this memo to sit down and figure out the best path forward for preserving traditional American values of competition and innovation and making sure that we are leading the world on these questions of the next generation of technology rather than giving away our position of leadership and our traditional approach to innovation. Great having you both with us. Thank you, Kevin, for coming in. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much. Andrea, thank you for joining us today. All the best. My pleasure. Thank you. Kevin Warbach of the Wharton School, Andrew Matuishan of Northeastern University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.